This week, the clickbait one. As I navigated to an article entitled, The Bible is More Accurate in Texas, <laughs> I couldn't help but wonder if I would be delighted or ashamed <laughs> of what I might find. <laughs> Turns out, delighted. <laughs> it was an article highlighting the work of some who have done things to put the y'all back in scripture. It's been mentioned here before, but frequently the limits of our language have us translating the plural Greek words as singular, particularly the word you. For example, verse 27 in our passage in Philippians today reads, I will know that you stand firm. Really, he's saying, I will know that y'all stand firm. In fact, all the yous in this passage are y'alls. While previously one might look up scripture on the you version site, there now exists an alternative page, the y'all version. <laughs> it seems a bit kitschy and maybe a tad self-aggrandizing, but the truth is we are often quick to lose the context of scripture. These are words to a people to be lived into together, not merely nuggets of wisdom individuals take home and privately ponder. The Philippians were a people in a particular place engaged with a particular opposition. This is not news to you if you have been here in the past few weeks, but because we're so used to the you version of scripture, it's sometimes helpful to reiterate the pieces that make it a y'all version. Our passage today draws on, plays on the patriotism of the citizens of Rome. It was a source of pride that Rome bestowed citizenship on Philippi, as Father John, Jonathan mentioned in our e-news this past week. Paul begins with the words, conduct yourselves. And the Greek here implies, as kingdom citizens. There's a polis in this word. The church in Philippi received rejection from the Romans, in the pride of their citizenship, and now Paul invites them to a different kind of patriotism. The uh, whatever happens that kicks off our passage is literally only. Putting these pieces together, it's fair to begin our reading hearing, only live out your kingdom citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you're a citizen of the place you're inhabiting, you probably think about your citizenship very little. But if you are a citizen elsewhere, the significance of your status are matters of everyday practicality. You may well expect that common activities come with an added layer of difficulty, an extra form to fill out, an extra ID card, more paperwork at your new job. In this room, we do not share all the same passports, the same earthly citizenships, and yet we gather because we are first and foremost kingdom citizens living in a foreign territory. Our passage today helps us see that as kingdom citizens, we must walk together, stand together, and run together. First, kingdom citizens walk together. Whenever Paul uses the phrase, in a manner worthy, he's drawing on the Jewish metaphor for walking. 
Paul uses this phrase throughout his letters, calling others to walk in a manner worthy to the church in Ephesus, to the church in Thessalonica, walk in a manner worthy. Walking symbolizes going about the business of living. What might it mean for kingdom citizens to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel? Jesus told a parable recorded for us in Luke chapter 19 that I think gives good shape to this invitation. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed as king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and he gave them 10 minas, 100 days wages, and said, put this money to work until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and he returned home. If you know this story, you are already on to the next part. You are already on to the nobleman talking to those servants and finding out what happens. But I want us to stay in this beginning piece for today. Jesus, as the man of noble birth, is presently away in the distant country. He has ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And as the creed and this parable affirm, he will return. Yet, the setting here at home is that, by and large, the subjects hate him. There is an environment of disdain regarding the man of noble birth. Transitions in power in the Middle East in the time of Jesus were unstable. There was a lot of uncertainty. There were situations where things like this would happen, where a delegation would follow somebody who was looking to get a particular appointment, and sometimes they would prevail. You know of King Herod because he went to Rome and received his post. You probably don't know about his son, Archelaus, because he made the same trip and received banishment. In this parable, the man of noble birth doesn't just leave, though. He calls ten servants and gives gifts and a charge. If we were to read this purely from our cultural context, the interpretation might be that the nobleman is looking for keen investors, people who are scrappy and know how to turn a buck. Here we read, take this money and make me more money. But the reality is quite different. Kenneth Bailey, one of my favorite biblical scholars, helps frame the charge of this noble man. Putting this money to work means to be doing business in the name of the nobleman. If one of the servants took that money and he or she opened a tapestry store, the understanding is that it would be called something like his royal majesty's rug shop. Putting the nobleman's money to work publicly identifies you as a devoted servant of that despised nobleman. This parable and this walking in a manner worthy is not about some particularly successful outcome. It's about everyday public faithful allegiance in the midst of opposition. When we say that kingdom citizens walk together, it means we go about the business of living in allegiance to our king in his name. 
but we can be honest. The brand of Jesus looks like a plummeting stock in our day and time. There are many who do not want Jesus as they know him to be king. And then there was the person who cut you off on the freeway this morning with a giant Jesus saves bumper sticker. People cite Jesus as the reason they spew hate on the internet. Allegiance to Christ becomes subject to other allegiances, political, familial, cultural. Thankfully, the Bible is not unaware of such realities. Remember, this is what Paul had written in the letter earlier. There are those who are proclaiming the name of Jesus from false motives, stirring up trouble. Our present environment is particular, it is unique, but it is hardly original. When I get to look out in this room, um, even in the brief time that I've been here, it's been my joy to see and hear and know of your lived out allegiance to Jesus. For some of you here, you are working hard and sticking it out in either marriage or singleness because of your devotion to Jesus. You are risking showing up to worship in spaces that don't feel natural or maybe even at times safe. You are actively resisting a capitulation to the harsh words and ways of your workplace and from taking your anger out on those under your leadership. You are seeking healing, knowing that the way to it often passes through discomfort, disorientation, and pain. You are pressing into relationships, into gospel friendships, in ways that feel costly and pull from resources, mental, emotional, logistical, that you're not quite sure you have. If not for Jesus, you would be somewhere else with more similarly temperamented or cultured people doing something altogether different right now. Wherever you find yourself tempted to hide your allegiance, those little places at work, in relationships, on an airplane. I get that a lot when somebody asks me, what do you do? And there's the moment. <laughs> get ready for either warmth or a big chill, <laughs> one way or the other. But I encourage you in those spaces and in those moments to take heart. Walking in a manner worthy of the gospel does come with blowback, with icy receptions, with misunderstanding, but it also comes with companionship and ultimately vindication. The man of noble birth will return. Our costly allegiance is not in vain. Fellow citizens, let us walk together. We also see from our text that kingdom citizens stand together we read, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit. While only hinted at in our passage today, it'll be mentioned more explicitly later in Philippians, there were internal tensions within the Philippian church. Paul here begins his call to unity. And unity, like allegiance, has been subject to abuse. 
People in power have been known to call for unity when they want others to bend to their will. Calls for unity at times mask calls to silence, calls to accept that which is unworthy of the gospel of Christ as worthy. Let us remember, though, that Paul sends this letter not from a podium, not from a throne, but from prison. And without stealing the thunder of our sermon next week, he preaches a unity that arises from Christ the King who laid down his life. The inversion of how we think about power, the way we understand the upside-down kingdom where God himself becomes subject to death, that upside-down kingdom cannot be divorced from the way we think and talk about unity. There is a unity that is worth preserving, worth calling for, one that does not mask darkness but allows light in. In his appeal to the one spirit, Paul pulls us into the reality that there is an existing unity. We are connected by the one and the same Holy Spirit. Why does that matter? Why is that a thing he would note? It matters because there is a world of difference in how we approach living into a unity that exists versus manufacturing a unity that doesn't exist. I don't have much hope for the latter. If you're manufacturing unity, it has to be built on a degree of sameness or a constructed similarity. That's kind of the tactic of Rome, right? Here's your Roman citizenship. Be Roman. Make sacrifices to the emperor upon whom a capricious man has smiled. Not a lot of hope in that. Notice that the Roman Empire does not exist anymore. When you encounter differences in this mindset, in this manufactured unity, the aim becomes assimilation or rejection. That's what Paul and the Philippian Christians are encountering. Assimilate to Rome or face the consequences. In this model where there's conflict, there is fear and blame, conflict is only a threat to be squashed. I do have a lot of hope in the former. I have hope in living into a reality that exists apart from manufacturing. Rather than trying to create artificial boundaries on who is in and who is out, we get to together receive in humility that which has been given to us that exists apart from us. We get to remind one another that we are citizens of the same kingdom, not by whim or political advantage or privilege of birth, but by grace. And unlike the Roman Empire, against the odds, against the fracturing and the sin and the brokenness, the church endures. I think all of that needs to be attributed to the Holy Spirit, the one and the same. When you encounter differences within a unity that pre-exists, the aim becomes mutual understanding and empowerment. And our citizenship is not something that keeps others out, that defines us by exclusion, but becomes welcome itself, becomes embrace. In this model, where conflict exists, we are invited into humility and charity. 
Rather than a threat, conflict provides opportunity for Christ-likeness, for self-sacrifice, meaningful repentance, for forgiveness. Some years ago, I was talking with a senior pastor. We'll call him Dave. I love Dave. Dave was sharing that if he had his way, he was kind of intimating, that if he had his way, some part of the worship service would be led differently. I remember asking him, just a little bit puzzled, I said, so why don't you change it? You're, you're the senior pastor. <laughs> that seems logical. And he replied, because this is not the church of Dave. This is the church of Christ. His preferences, his position, was subordinate to the unity of the church. With whatever power we have in this room, may we live as those in service to the way of Jesus over and above our own preferences. It doesn't mean it feels good. Conflict and self-sacrifice rarely do. It doesn't mean we'll do it perfectly. There will be mistakes along the way requiring of us much grace and mercy. But living into the unity that has been given us does mean we can enter into unpredictable terrain with hope. May the Holy Spirit empower our hope. As we move toward one another and we seek to live into our given unity, may we do so in ways that reflect the upside-down kingdom where the humble are lifted up. Let us stand together in the one spirit. Kingdom citizens walk. We stand and finally, we run together. We read, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. That striving together, that language Paul uses as one of athletic competition, not my favorite, but it is the language of strenuous activity. That I know. Hence, we, I thought of the most strenuous thing I could, and it's running. <laughs> Hence, we run together. There are a few images that immediately come to mind as powerfully as when I read Paul's words as those of the civil rights movement. When I read the call to strive together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, I can't help but picture marches, lunch counters, and the like. Together striving. It's athletic. It's running. It's movement, but paradoxically, it's also the epitome of steadfastness. Sister Thea Bowen is a part of the civil rights movement legacy. She became a nun at the age of 16 in Wisconsin. Sister Thea was the first African-American in the order of the Franciscan Sisters for Perpetual Adoration. And she did deep work in contextualizing, reforming Catholic spirituality with black culture. One of her most well-known sermons was to bishops in 1989 on being a black Catholic. You can find this on YouTube, and I highly recommend it. She was a phenomenal preacher with deep wisdom to offer. She was at that time five years into what would be a six-year-long battle with cancer, and she passed away in 1990. 
In that sermon to the bishops, she lays out some truths beautifully. She sings some of them. It's well worth a watch. And uh, I'll just have to say, I love anybody who in the middle of speaking to powerful people says, I've got one more thing to say. You all aren't going to like it, but that's okay. (laughs) She endeared herself (laughs) to, to the likes of me in that. She ended her talk with words of hope and called on those images of the civil rights movements and of other movements of people striving and not running away. As she shared words of encouragement, saying encouragement, she said, now bishops, I'm gonna ask you all to do something. Cross your right hand over your left hand. You've gotta move together to do that. And as the camera pans out, you see the sea of bishops, and they kind of are doing the typical American thing, which is having lots of space between each other, right? They are nowhere close. And so they're actually like, what's happening? And the the movement, the getting up, the getting close together. She says, all right, now walk with me. And some people join her on the stage. She's bound to a wheelchair at this point, but others moved in to step beside her. And she said, see, in the old days, you had to tighten up so that when the bullets would come, so that when the tear gas would come, so that when the dogs would come, so that when the horses would come, so that when the tanks would come, brothers and sisters would not be separated from one another. Striving together, running but not running away. We aren't frequently, if at all, faced with those same challenges. Horses, bullets, tanks. There is little comparison to be made. And yet, the call to steadfastness and striving together meets us all the same. What might it mean to meet our job losses, our health crises, with this kind of tightening up? What might it mean to meet our societies or maybe even our own felt sense of hopelessness engagement with the violence of the world, our relational poverty with this kind of tightening up, that brothers and sisters would not be separated from one another. I love that this image doesn't assume the person next to you has to be the most lovable or the most uncomplicated person. We're not together and tightening up because you look or smell good, not a factor. As long as they are willing to hold tight, to stand firm, to strive alongside, we'll be all right. Fellow citizens, let us run together. Some of you are here this morning with the last ounce of energy in your tank. Please do not hear me saying to you this day that it is on your shoulders to suddenly behave like your tank is full. The widow's might is not despised, but blessed, extolled. We're glad you're here. If you have more to give, if you find yourself rich in these ways, find yourself in abundance, then yes, I do invite you to give more. Reach out for the one who can't right now. When molecules heat up, they move around more. They take up more space, they expand, they spread out. It's the same with summer in Texas. (laughs) 
There's a distance that often comes in the summertime. It heats up and we move around. We spread out. I want to encourage us to find ways, even small ways, to tighten up. That we might walk together in allegiance. That we might stand together in unity and run together in steadfastness. Paul's letter to the Philippians is impossible to be faithful to without one another. You can't tighten up alone. It requires y'all. We need one another to live into the charge Paul issued here to the Philippians and which the Spirit issues to us today. But what I preach is not ultimately about increased or optimized efforts. It's about the grace to enter in, to partake of what has already been done for and among us. We want to live as kingdom citizens, not because it makes us feel heroic or noble, but because we know our king. We know something of the kingdom he has begun and will bring in full. This is the king that walks with us, that doesn't ask for our allegiance merely from a throne, but from a cross as well. This is the king who stands with us, who sends us his Holy Spirit to make us one, not just with one another, but with him. He joins himself to us. This is the king who gives us courage in the striving, who makes us fearless in the struggle, and who anchors us, keeps us steadfast until his return, come what may. This is the kingdom where we lose our lives for the sake of their king, and we find them saved. And on that great day of salvation, we will together find our sufferings gathered and redeemed. Jesus has given himself to us and for us and brought us into this kingdom even now as its citizens by grace through faith. Only let us walk in a manner worthy of this good news of Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.